God now in flesh appearing. What an amazing truth that is. Please uh, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. And let's consider a reply to the law's confused dependence. There's a little handout on the back table if that is useful to you, just with a few headings on it. It's not a very detailed handout. Something I'm going to read you, please. Um, Romans chapter 7 from verse 7. I'm going to read through verse 12. Romans 7, verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said you shall not covet. But sin, sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. A reply to the law's confused dependence. This section of Romans returns to the subject of the law. And if uh, you look just uh, briefly there, if you look at 4, 5, and 6, which is where we had been really for the last couple of weeks, 4, 7, verse 4, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law. Okay, that's what I want you to notice. He, he, he said you become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another, not to the law, married to another, to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For verse 5, when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law, the law aroused sinful passions. That's not a good thing. It's a bad thing. The sinful passions aroused in our members to bear fruit to death. And then in verse 6, but now we've been delivered from the law. We've been delivered from it. It, it, it. it must be bad. Having died too, what we were held by so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. You shouldn't serve according to the oldness of the letter. You get the feeling there is something wrong with the law. We've kind of touched on this off and on through the book and the spirit of God is is truly verbally the spirit of God with words is pounding on something here and this uh, returning to the subject of the law. The spirit of God is persuading against wrongheadedness about the law here in in this letter. And I am not sure all of this is, well, I'm positive this is not easy to grasp. It's 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 a challenge to grasp the, the wholeness of this revelation. And so how does the Spirit speak? How does the Spirit reply to, um, I've called them the confused legal loyalists. Or, or people who have a, a real esteem for God's law. They, they have seen uh, 
goodness in it and rightness in it, and yet Paul continues to make statements like we just reviewed there in 4, 5, and 6. So let's ask a question. Does Paul have a dim view of the law? Does he have a dim view of the law? He has said, the scriptures have said here, that that service and fruit to God, service to God and fruit to God cannot be rendered according to the letter. That was a pretty simple black and white statement there. This does seem to imply some defect in it, doesn't it, Dan? You cannot serve God according to the letter of the law. Banning, you you cannot produce fruit to God according to the letter of the law. And so that logically makes us go, well, stay away from it. If if it's not going to accomplish any of these things which we know are good, don't serve according to the law must mean that it's bad. So what are we to think of Paul's thoughts on the law? Review with me a little bit. Go back to Romans 3.20. We'll be back here in 7 shortly. But look back at Romans 3.20. What does he think of this? Does Paul have a dim view of the law? Paul said in chapter 3 and verse 20, By deeds of the law, therefore by deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. By deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified. For by the law is knowledge of sin. The law cannot justify. So is Paul dissing it? Is, is Paul demeaning the law there? Romans 3.21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law, he says, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The law isn't the righteousness of God. (laughs) Righteousness apart from the law is revealed, is what he says in 321. Go down to chapter 4, verse 13. Romans 4, verse 13. Speaking about Abraham, the promise that he would be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. So we see that there's a pattern here. God's favor and his blessing is attributed to the righteousness of faith sidestepping the law, leaving the law out of the picture, even demeaning the law in a, in a sense. This isn't something you can have by the law. People who would lay claim to God's blessing according to their legal right by the law, they'll, they'll say, we are Abraham's children, of course. You made a promise to Abraham and his seed. We are the rightful inheritors of your blessing. Somebody making that claim is being rebuked here in this passage. Someone who is wrongly situated themselves under the law for blessing finds themselves being rebuked here. Sinners have very easily reasoned 
really for generations following Abraham. They have reasoned, we are his children, we're Abraham's grandchildren. God's blessing is ours. According to the promise, according to the rule, according to the law. So, you might conclude with a couple of these examples, Paul does have a little bit of a dim view of the law here. You, you would begin to think that, man, there, there does seem to be something wrong with the law. But the, the scriptures reveal a, a little bit more of a profound issue here. There is a problem in men's hearts regarding the law. There's where the problem is. Paul goes into some uh, speaking about it, and, and if you think about what we uh, end up having read here, I think you'll see with me that sin makes adaptations. Sin seems to have creaturely characteristics. Sin seems to have almost uh, anthropomorphic abilities. <laughs> as, as in Sin seems to have the ability to act sort of like a person, right? It reasons. Using the law, sin interacts with the law, causing the guy who owns the sin wherein it dwells, causing that person to do his own navigations and his own conclusions and his own livings because of the way sin has interacted with that. I'm going to I'm going to show you how how this actually leads to the seduction of men and women. You're seduced by sin's ability to deal both with you and with the law both. This is what sin does in a person here. It's very, very intriguing. And, and, and this truth about the law and you and your sin must be understood. You need to labor to understand what's being said here. This is a very tricky section of Scripture here. Between Romans chapter 4 and, and Chapter 8. Very, very complex piece of landscape here. For me, for, for years, I've been chewing on and chewing on and chewing on. And I'm not, I'm not arrived here yet. I, I think I've, I've made some advancing in my studies. I think the Lord's really been helping me. So let's consider for a second the fact that there's no sin without the law. Let's think about that for a second. In light of the teaching of righteousness of God by faith, okay? That's, that's what we've learned from, from, from the middle of chapter 3 forward. The righteousness of God, which is the righteousness required for eternal life. The righteousness of God is attained by faith, okay? The righteousness of God by faith. Shall we sin? If that's how we are made righteous, have righteousness, 6-1 asks the question, shall we sin? No. No. You can't sin. 
even though there's no law. That's why the heading says no sin without the law. When the Spirit prohibits sin, listen, this is this is kind of where we're going to start thinking carefully. When the, when the Spirit prohibits sin there in 6, shall we sin? And you all know that the answer was no. No. We should not. Can, can Paul be saying, can the Holy Spirit be saying at the same time that the law has now become silent? Shall we continue, shall we keep sinning since we've been saved by grace? No, is the answer. So then can you accomplish what has been requested and ignore the law? You get the question. Can you not sin if you are, if you've just flushed the law down the toilet? How do you not sin if there's no law? Can't be done. Let me go on. 6.12. Romans 6.12. Do not let sin dwell in your mortal bodies. Do not give your members to it. 6.15. A couple verses down. Shall we sin because we are not under law? And the answer, I believe, teaches us something about how Paul is dealing with this issue. It's fair to say we shouldn't sin. Can we say that? And that's an easy conclusion from what we've even just looked at in two or three verses. We shouldn't sin. We shouldn't. The Spirit says, Christian, don't believe that the law has wrongly prohibited sin. Don't believe that. Does that make sense? We, we, there's nowhere you can infer that that's what the Scripture has said here. You can't think that the law has wrongly prohibited sin. He gives us an example we'll look at in a moment here. Covetousness, right? Covetousness is something he'll address in just a moment. Although you are not under law, you are not allowed to ignore what it has revealed about sin. Does that seem plain to you? It should. I think that should be plain. You are not under law, and at the same time, you are not free to call its sin of no concern. That is, when the law shows you this is sin, you're not allowed to ignore it because you're not under law. Now, is that confusing? It's a little bit confusing, maybe. Because you want to say, I'm not under it. So why do I have to listen to it? And that would be a reasonable thought. But it does seem to be the plain teaching of, of what he's speaking about here. You are not under law and you are not free to call its sin of no concern. So what does it mean to be not under law? Let's think about what he means by not under law. 
the Christian is not under law because, and I believe you know the answer to this, why are you not under law? What has Romans taught you about what you are and are not under? What are you under if you're a Christian? Christ. Grace. He's taught us we've died to the law. We've died to sin. You're not under it. You're under Christ. Right? We know that. It's been very, very plain to us. Union with Christ in the death of Christ rescued you from being under the law. Rescued you from being even in the reign of sin. That's We've been studying that. We've been reading that. So let me give you two conclusions. Not being under the law means at least these two things. And then these just come from what we've been studying and reading. Number one, the law can no longer claim your death penalty. I'm not under the law. The law cannot have my life. We know that this is true. We've been studying this. The law prohibits sin. And you are a sinner. Even today, you probably have already sinned. And you probably will sin more. You are a sinner. The law prohibits sin. The wages of sin is death. But death has been rendered on your behalf if you have put your trust in Christ. Therefore, you are not under law in that sense. Law cannot have this. You are not under law. Because you have died. Have you died? Did you die? Were you buried with Christ in your baptism? Do you reckon yourself dead to sin in your death with Christ and alive to God in your resurrection with Christ? That's what we've been taught to think and understand about this. You're not on death row anymore. You're not under law. The contractual obligation of a sinner to the law has been broken in Christ. Isn't that awesome? Law has a contractual, a legally binding requirement of the sinner. And and we're not talking a court of, 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 of the Supreme Court or of America's court or of the UN's court. We are talking God's court. And yet, if you are in Christ, if you have joined yourself to Christ, you are not under the law anymore. And this is the great and glorious hope of the gospel. Number two, Romans 6, 11 and 7, 4 make an additional comment along these lines. So not being under the law is further commented on in those two passages, Romans 6, 11 and 7, 4. So 11 says, likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then 7, 4. Go to chapter 7 and verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit 
to God. Your faith death, your faith death, if you have died by faith with Christ, sin and the law no longer hold bossness over you. They can't tell you what to do anymore. Your death with Christ annulled that relationship to both sin and the law and joined you to a new master. You are not under law. That means you don't have to obey it. It is not your boss. And and, and if I could say it this way without, without... getting under your feathers too much here. The, the, the illustration of husband and wife and, and the death of one releasing the bride from the bossness of her husband is what's in view here. When, 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 when the death of that groom takes place, the widow is no longer obligated to be under subjection to her husband because now she is free because of that death. That's the whole point of the illustration that we've been studying there. So, when you died to your previous spouse, and in this case it's called sin and law, in those two verses, we looked at, at uh, 6, 6, 11 and 7, 4, there, there are two separations taking place here. The separations are between you and sin and law. And this is a transfer of, I kind of want to use the word ownership because this word servant is used. Ownership is for slaves and masters. And this is the word that's used here, doulos, means servant. Doulos means slave person who is owned by a master. When, when that death takes place, there is a transfer of your servitude. You are now servant to someone else. And in this realm of service, the, the Christian is raised back in 7.6. It says you don't serve under the letter. You don't serve according to the letter, but you serve according to the newness of the spirit. So the second thing that we're speaking of here, what does it mean to not be under the law? It means it's not the boss. Sin and law are no longer the boss. Faith, death, is death to sin, death to law, freeing you to be subject to another. You are to serve according to the newness of the Spirit. And we don't get to that for a while. He mentioned it and then dove into the subject of the law. And so we will wait a little bit before we talk much about being in service according to the Spirit. But I believe we are right in saying from what we see here, since Paul continues to say, shall we continue in sin... And the answer is no every time. He means for the Christian to understand that that the law, in terms of its moral insight, in terms of its defining right and wrong, the law isn't wrong. 
And the law has not lost its rightness when you died with Christ. It is not your master. It is not able to claim your life on death row. But it is able to say what's right and what's not right. So what is the glory of the law? He, he gives some boasting about the law. How are we to think about the law? If a Christian has been made righteous by faith in Christ and according to grace, he's not under the law, what are we supposed to think of it? How do we think rightly about it? Romans 7, 7 says, what should we say then? Is the law sin? No. Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. So here is his, his, his first praise of the law in this context. What does he appreciate about it? What is he saying is a great thing about the law? It's a very positive thing he has said here. He says it's not sin and it teaches sin. It's not sin. It teaches sin. From the second part of verse 7 to the end of verse 11, he goes on to say, I would not have known sin except through the law. I would not have known covetousness unless the law said you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, you see how the, the, the two somehow are being worked together. Sin sin is the thing taking opportunity. Sin is the thing somehow operating itself in some sort of conjunction with the commandment produces in the sinner, produces in me all manner of evil desire. Apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when commandment came, sin revived, I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. Sin taking occasion by the commandment. Sin being the actor, sin being the worker, deceived me and by it killed me. So he says very positively, I wouldn't have known covetousness unless the law prohibited it. This is a benefit of the law according to Paul's teaching of it. He's actually, in a sense, saying, I'm glad I know that covetousness was sin. Why does Paul say this in a positive light? Why would he say this in a positive light? Can you get your mind around him doing this? Well, if covetousness is one faithful witness to the, the, the certitude of the fatality of your sickness... If the law says there is no question, evidence of your imminent death is right here in covetousness. Here it is. If the law does that, will a humble, believing, God-fearing man or woman find himself Losing confidence in his hope of eternal life? Of course he will. 
when the law exposes covetousness in Paul, when Paul learns that he is covetous, what does he know about himself? Well, put, put it in the words of, of the Lord in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Oh, no. I'm not rich in spirit. I'm, I'm standing in line for the death penalty. That's where he finds himself. Man, this thing is so crazy lately. I can't get it to sit still. Can this man come to understand he is spiritually dead? He actually uses those words in, in these lines here. He says, I find that this is what sin is doing. It is killing me. Can the one who hears the Spirit preach? Now, I, I use that, that phrase when, when, when you hear the Word of God, reading it in the Scripture, whether it's the Old Covenant or the New Covenant, the Spirit of God speaks. And when Paul was first confronted with these words about covetousness, can he be warned of the evils of sin and then be prepared to seek the Savior? Can a person dread the reality of sin and death and realize he needs a Savior? And of course the answer is yes. This is, this is the point and this is the glory of the law. The law exposes you to your sin. The law drives you to know that you have a lawlessness in you. There's lawlessness in us that's according to our human nature. Sin actually deceives and sin kills. And in the process of our human nature, we become ignorant of it. If you look at verse 10, chapter 7, verse 10, look what he said there. The commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. How did that happen? Well, think about this just for a second. You, you know one of the laws says don't steal. Don't steal. Well, maybe there was a time when you heard that law and it made you feel happy. Because you hadn't stolen anything in your recollection. You read that and it made you feel, oh, God likes me. I, I don't steal. He, he, he favors me. I'm, I'm, I'm certainly in line to, for his salvation because I, I don't steal. But then, as time goes on, maybe you, you actually go ahead and, and steal something that you hadn't stolen before. Or maybe you realize, oh, I kind of do steal. I kind of have stolen modifying my time card by five minutes or ten minutes here or there. Or I, I did steal a, a piece of gum when I was six. Sometimes kids admit that in their conversations with, uh, with Ray Comfort. Yeah, I, I, I stole little things. See, in, in our minds, in our minds, when your convictor says stealing that little piece of gum was sin your your convictor can say yeah but that was like 3 cents and that store makes you know 
if it's if it's Costco, they make something like you know forty thousand dollars a weekend. So what's three cents? So sin goes to work inside your knowledge of the law and begins to weave a little tale, weave a little justification, put together a little defense that leaves the sinner saying, it's really not the same. God doesn't look at my little white thefts here and there. I, I know I'm just borrowing that from white lie. But, but the light of the law shows the honest man that he's a sinner. The light of the law works on his heart and his mind in such a way exposing his sin so that he will agree with Romans 3.23 all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. The law produces this Conviction. The law can speak to a comfortable and dull-eared patient, that the patient is the one who is sick. The law can speak to this patient who is comfortable with himself. Many times people are comfortable with themselves, comfortable with their lives until they come under biblical preaching. And then maybe for the first time in their lives or for the first time in many, many months, they're like, wow, I'm nowhere near as righteous as I kind of was hoping I was or I felt comfortable that I was. I'm realizing that I'm nowhere near the kind of righteous person that I imagine myself to be. And this drives them to seek salvation from sin's curse. The Lord Jesus stood up and preached, and I think I mentioned this a week or two ago, in Luke 4, 16, the Lord Jesus stands up and he is handed the scroll and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he reads and he says this amazing um, statement out of the book of Isaiah. I'm going to read it to you, Luke 4:16. I love this passage here because of what the Lord says at the end. Luke 4.16. He's reading in his hometown. I'm going to skip to verse 18. After he had been handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, it says, He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. When the Lord speaks of the offer of liberty, who does that apply to? It only applies to the bound. Liberty is for those who are not at liberty. Look at the other words in there. Um, Who is the poor? Preach the gospel to the poor. On the surface, it's, it's the financially poor, which in some instances applies over to the spiritually poor, which is the main application. Sometimes financially poor are not spiritually poor at all, at least in their own minds. But the poor, those who have want, those who have need, spiritually are those that he came to preach to. The brokenhearted, 
liberty of the captives, sight to the blind. Who's blind? Who's blind? It's, it's those who don't know how to see the Lord. Those who don't know how to see their way to eternal life. The law, the law proves you are on death row. The law proves that you are captive. The law proves that you're blind. And Paul says that this is a great quality of it. This is a glory of the law. Think just for a moment what he says there between verses 10 and 13. 7, 10 to 13. I'm not going to dwell long on this because we touched on it a moment ago. He says, The commandment which was to bring life I found to bring death. Sin taking occasion by the commandment. Sin acts on a person's heart. It acts on hearts. I believe we've read at numerous places, one cross-reference, Deuteronomy 11.16, hearts are where deception takes place. Hearts are where people are misled and deceived. So sin acts on the heart. It emboldens hearts. It reasons with hearts. It rewards or offers rewards for the hearts. So when, when hearts are standing in the law, considering the law, sin interacts with them and the sinner's heart attention to the law. And so sin helps to dull your knowledge of the law. Sin helps to embolden your lawlessness. Sin heightens your sense of your own virtue. Sin, sin allows you to, to carve out little exceptions for yourself, feeling like there's a good reason for exception in this case. Sin helps pride to see the law's requirements as something easy, something not requiring much attention. The law's Authority isn't so bad, and I'm, I'm easily able to, to stay within its bounds. Sin dulls fear. Sin offers persuasive reasons to covet or gossip. There's good reasons to talk about this person. There's no bad reasons why I shouldn't talk about this person. Sin does this while dimming dimming the negative reasons that should be prohibiting you from behaving like that. Sin does this. Romans 7.13 says, Sin has used your sin deceiving the sinner. Sin produces death by plunging the sinners into defiance of the law. The law has an amazing service for men. So if we look at verse 13, he says, Has what then what is good has what is good become death to me? Has the law become death to me? Certainly not. But sin that it might appear sin was producing death in me. So sin is the thing producing death, not the law. 
And it is doing it, if we keep reading, through what is good. The law. Through the law. Through what is good. So that sin, through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal. So just a couple of closing thoughts here. Sin kills by the law. Sin kills by the law. The law makes sin to be massively sinful. The law actually turns into this uh, magnifying glass or petri dish for, for sin, if you will. The law teaches, but sin teaches also. Sin debates with the law. Sin persuades with the law. Sin makes bold. So the law is a kind tool. It is a good tool. Do you understand why I would say it's kind? Sin warns the sinner from death. Sin warns the sinner the difference between righteousness and unrighteousness. Sin or the laws kind. And I say I probably said that backwards. I think my my recorder playing back is hearing that backwards. The law is pointing out what is perilous to us. The law is saying don't die. The law is saying don't be unrighteous. The problem is is that men seek the law for the cure. Men find the law is how I am going to be righteous. The law is how I'm going to be good. So the law is warning you about these things, but it has no power to keep you from it. It shows you your desperate need. The law is a glorious tool. The law is a wonderful reality that God has given to men. It is perfect. It is holy. It is just. What does the word just mean? What's another word for just? Fair. Right. Not fair. Right. Justification and righteousification. Remember, we put those two together sometimes. It's right. The law is right. There's an issue brought to our attention here. It's the last verse in the passage. Verse 14. We know the law is spiritual. And the sinner is carnal. Here's the fundamental problem between a sinner and the law. The law is spiritual. The sinner is carnal. That carnal here is meant to make sure you know you are a creature who is a sinner. You're a son of Adam. By your nature, you are a sinner. And therefore, the law, being that in its nature is spiritual, spiritual doesn't mix with material and carnal. It, there's, there's a constant, like oil and water, there's a conflict between law and carnal, between spirit and flesh. He'll speak about that a little bit more. 
as we go on to this. The sin nature, this is kind of a helpful illustration, the sin nature is like roots in a parched plant, a plant that is just dying for water. The sin nature is like that plant whose roots start stretching down into a septic tank. It just reaches down into poopy, nasty water. But it's going to drink it in. The sin nature is just drawn into that for its life. The law is not useless. The law is not to be despised. Because sinners could not desire God's grace and God's righteousness without the law exposing them to their need of righteousness. This is why the law is great. This is why the law is good. To the humble, to the humble, the law exposes their hypocrisy. To the humble, the law proves that they are on their way to death. And it leads them to the one who has the cure of unrighteousness, who has the cure of death. And so I'm just going to ask, do you agree? Will you agree? Have you agreed with a holy and just law? That you are a terrible lawbreaker? Or you use the law to comfort yourself and, and, and tell yourself, what a good boy am I? What a good woman am I? Is this the function of the law in your heart? Have you sought Christ for the righteousness that God requires? Because this is what the gospel teaches. Now the righteousness apart from the law has been revealed. Does the law help you seek Christ and God's righteousness by Christ? Don't serve the law thinking it will make you righteous. Don't follow the law thinking that this is how you are going to be made clean. It never will. How will you be clean? How can you be clean? How can you be righteous? Christ. 100% Jesus Christ. You must seek Christ for that full and whole glorious holiness and justice and righteousness of the law because he's the only one who is the source of it. Let me close with you in a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for these thoughts about the law, the goodness of the law, the generosity and the richness of the Lord Jesus and you, God, who have have given us his righteousness. We praise you. We thank you in the name of the Savior. Amen.